There's a compelling short story written by Richard Matheson that tells of a struggling married couple named Norma and Arthur. They were scratching out an existence in an already struggling marriage. One evening, Arthur finds a strange package on his doorstep. Norma opens it to discover a wooden box with a locked glass dome protecting a single protruding button. The note at the bottom of the box says that somebody will come by at 9 p.m. to explain the device. That evening, Arthur is working a night shift, so it's Norma who meets a Mr. Stewart who arrives to explain the strange package. Norma's given an envelope with a key that will unlock the glass dome so she can push the button if she should choose. Mr. Stewart tells her that if she pushes the button, two things will happen. First, somebody she doesn't know will die. Second, she will receive $200,000 tax-free. At first, Norma thinks it's a joke, but she's assured by Mr. Smith that this is not a joke. The man leaves, and later when Arthur comes home from his night shift, he finds Norma obsessing over this box. She explains it to her husband, who immediately tells her that she can't push the button, that this is a terrible proposal. Norma begins to justify it by suggesting that thousands of people die all over the world every single day. She's not wrong. Arthur takes a screwdriver. He opens up the bottom of the box to reveal it's empty. The button is connected to nothing. Nothing would happen when you push the button. But Arthur is still disturbed by the choice to push it. So Arthur grabs the box, he takes it outside, and he throws it in the trash. Later that night, Norma gets up. She goes outside in the darkness to the garbage bin. She gets through the garbage and she finds this box, brings it in, and she stares at it till morning, unlocking the dome, closing it again repeatedly until the sun comes up. When Arthur wakes up, he sees his wife, and they argue about the ethics of what she wants to do. Norma then unlocks the dome, and she pushes the button. Arthur looks at her with disgust and walks away. The reality sinks in. If the marriage was struggling before, this isn't going to help. She has chosen to kill somebody, albeit someone she doesn't know. She may have gained the world, $200,000 of it, but at what cost? Later that day, Mr. Stewart arrives with a briefcase. He tells Norma that that, that he is aware that she has pushed the button, and she asks if someone has died, and he assures her, yes, somebody has definitely died. He then hands her a briefcase filled with $200,000. It seems so easy, so painless. He then proceeds to take the box from her. He puts it in his briefcase and he tells her that the box will be reprogrammed and given to somebody else with the same terms and conditions that she received. She looks puzzled at him and she asks, you're going to give the box to somebody else? He looks at her and says, yes, I am. But don't worry, Norma. I can assure you the box will be given to somebody you don't know. In that moment... She's filled with terror. And so are you. The the twist rots your gut as the reader. It's not just Norma who succumbs to the idea that her life might be worth more than someone else's. Somehow she feels that the anonymous harm would be different. And as the reader, you find yourself at some point considering her dilemma. 
The whole thing seems to be a test. She fails miserably. You may remember this story as it was adapted to screen for a Twilight episode from 1986. Of course, it's fiction, but yet there is so much truth in this story. It becomes a metaphor for all of us. Many people are willing to cross ethical and moral lines when they think they can get away with it, or even when they think that they can justify it, because maybe the people that get hurt are strangers, or maybe the people on the receiving end of our choices and even our ignorance deserve it. How much would you need to push the button? What would you have to be promised in order to consider it? I'm sure all of us would say, Aaron, come on, I would never, we would never, nobody I know would ever. But sometimes it's our ignorance that pushes the buttons. If we want to stop the pain, if, we, if someone has to stop pushing the buttons, the buttons of war, the buttons of hatred, the buttons of anger, the buttons of apathy. I think Jesus has something to say. We are called to interrupt the cycles of violence, to nosh to not push these buttons of pride and greed and judgmentalism and bitterness and ego. Jesus is quite aware of the cycles in our human behavior, the cycles fed by our egos, by our desire to acquire and protect all that is ours, our stuff, our opinions, our pride, our futures. And Jesus seems to tell us many times in many ways that it's killing us, that we can gain the whole world, but we'll lose our soul. Nothing is worth that. No amount of money. No temporary pleasure or happiness. Not if it causes us to diminish the lives of others because after all, we're all connected. Apparently we need each other to see God. After all, it's in God's image that we've been created. And when we have marred that image, it's difficult to see, so we forget that to look at another human being is to glimpse the image of God. All human beings. As author Mike Mason so eloquently writes in his book, Practicing the Presence of People, he says the conclusion is inescapable. That to be in the presence of even the meanest, lowest, most repulsive specimen of humanity in the world is still to be closer to God than when looking up into a starry sky or at a beautiful sunset. According to Jesus in Matthew 5, when we begin to engage the world as peace creators, that image resurfaces all over again, and we will be called children of God, God's children, because we will look like our Heavenly Father. We will share the heart of the universe. When we push the buttons that reject the divinity in every human life, we die morally, ethically, and spiritually, as much as those who die physically. This is the story of Eden all over again. The choice was laid out. The consequences were clear. Do this and you will surely die. Push that button. You will feel the loss and ache to return to the garden. But we've lost the way. Jesus comes to show us how to get back. Follow me, he says. I know the way. This series has been about looking at the things that Jesus talked about the most. And it is no coincidences that these are the struggles of our common humanity. Pride, attachment, judgmentalism, uh, forgiveness, and finally the desire to harm and hurt other people. These five struggles also seem to be cyclical in nature. 
And by that I mean they all seem to involve and affect the lives of others in ways that continue to hurt in concentric circles ad nauseum. And Jesus in his teachings offers us a new way. And his way isn't about eliminating the struggle. For to struggle with these five things is to be human. It is the human condition. Instead, Jesus offers us a way to interrupt these cycles and move through the struggles. To become more than our urges, more than our desires, more than our appetites. A way to transcend and become more than just how we feel. Even how we think we can grow and in doing so become so much more. Because if we aren't becoming, we are unbecoming. And we've heard it over the last few weeks. We interrupt the dangers of pride by choosing humility. It isn't easy. It's a choice. As C.S. Lewis says, we don't need to think less of ourselves. Just think of ourselves less. Humility chooses common humanity and empathy over sympathy and arrogance. And when we're able to make that choice, it enables us to interrupt the cycle of judgmental thinking. We become more open to other ideas. We allow curiosity to bloom. We make space for each other. And even our differences can be celebrated. We become more comfortable without knowing everything. We understand the difference between judging and discerning. It's that we can judge all by ourselves, but the Holy Spirit is required in our lives to teach us how to discern. And that discernment interrupts the bitterness, causing us to be unforgiving and jaded. Not that we don't have feelings or have the, those feelings, but we're choosing to not act on them and allowing the virtue of non-attachment to help us learn to let go of them, to let go of wrongs done to us and by us, of things said and unsaid, and that ability to let go disrupts the cycle of attachment. We learn to hold things more loosely so that they're able to pass. The cycle of attachment, uh, the cyclical cycle of attachment robs us because with our fists clenched and our minds closed, we are unable to receive anything new or different. We spend our time defending our stuff so attached to our positions, our ideas, our opinions, our hurts. Without an interruption, we don't just have bitter memories, we become them. Jesus interrupts those if we follow him, if we listen, if we believe him, we learn to let go of what we think is good for what we discover is better. And as we've listened to Jesus' ideas each week, and as we've seen how they begin to build something greater than the sum total of these individual virtues, we see a path unfold, a path that Jesus says leads us to the very heart of God. Not today. I want to talk about the fifth virtue that Jesus addresses constantly in different ways to different audiences. The idea of doing harm, of choosing nonviolent and non-harmful ways to confront those who hurt us. Now, most of us wouldn't see ourselves as violent people for sure, but let's open this definition up for a minute. Let's understand the way that Jesus uses this word. Violence is behavior intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. Jesus understands violence in a much broader way than most of us. And it actually implicates all of us. Listen to him in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says that you've heard it said that you should never murder anybody. 
But I'm telling you that anger used in a way that hurts, damages, or kills somebody is murder. Don't misunderstand Jesus here. Anger is an important emotion. And for some, it's their superpower if it's used to build and bring change. But any anger that destroys, hurts, or damages, Jesus says, is violence. It harms. It diminishes. And like unforgiveness, it also harms the one wielding it as a weapon. Don't push the button. The satisfaction you think you'll receive comes at too high a cost. To wish harm on someone or to wish that somebody wasn't alive in your life, to diminish another person's dignity, to boost your own, is to push a button and something inside you dies. Jesus was a non-reactionary presence in the world. The difference between a reactionary presence and a responsive presence is that you take time before you speak or act to consider Should I push this button? I feel like pushing this button. Others tell me I'm justified in pushing this button. People I love and know push this button. Asking these questions of yourself require you to not simply react before you reply to that text or that email or comment at dinner. To be a non-reactive presence is to interrupt the easy way. To at least consider a better way which is the Jesus way, to ask, will this hurt? Will this destroy? Socrates once mused that if what you want to say is neither true, nor good, nor kind, nor useful or necessary, you shouldn't say anything at all. And by useful, I'm sure he means not just useful for you and your ego, but will it help those hearing it or just increase the desire for retribution? from them. Walter Wink helps us understand the original language of Jesus's teachings in a largely misunderstood passage from Luke chapter 6 verse 29. What we've interpreted as Jesus as saying, do not resist an evil person. If they strike you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Walter Wink reminds us that the original language is more accurately understood as, do not use violence to resist an evildoer. Jesus isn't saying don't stop them from hurting you. He's saying don't become like those who hurt you. He's calling on us to interrupt the cycle of pain and harm by responding in a completely different way. I don't know what way. He's telling us to be creative, to listen, to discern. We need the Holy Spirit in those moments to creatively, intentionally, in a way that builds and doesn't do more harm. We need to make space in that moment that there's more going on than what we can see. And if you want to hear an excellent unpacking of this passage specifically, you need to listen to Christian Harvey's message from April 30th of this year in our podcasts. It's a message called, I Don't Believe in Monsters. Christian, who works at One City, who uh, um, co-leads One City, actually also runs a couple of community workshops on these very ideas, nonviolence. And actually, they're holding a workshop in November and one in December. Go to onecityptbo.ca to learn more. So I don't actually struggle this morning talking about the idea of nonviolence. I don't feel the need to unpack everything Christians already talked about, largely because 
the other five weeks that we've done in these teachings of Jesus have softened my heart. They've made space. I hope they've done that to you too. In choosing to be humble, in choosing to see the value of discernment and not judgment, in seeing the need to choose to learn to let go, to make that choice, to be willing to be generous instead of rigid, to hold loosely my opinions, my ideas, and choosing to forgive or to work towards forgiveness. These make a path that leads not only to understanding the importance of not doing harm, but these other virtues added together actually produce the desire to build and repair. And the path that leads here inspires us to remove violence and violent anger or hatred from our toolbox altogether. Because if we don't remove them, then they're always available as options. How are we any better than those whose actions and words have harmed us? Imagine if war wasn't an option. If we just couldn't afford to fight an ongoing senseless battle for years. We would get very creative in other ways to resolve the conflict out of necessity. But we found a way to just keep printing money. Because bombs have more value right now than babies. It's fitting that I've addressed the virtue of choosing non-destructive and non-harmful actions last. Because without the other ones, this one is impossible. And not just impossible to not do, but impossible to actually understand. That's why the way of Jesus is a path. It's one step in front of the other. Jesus also uses the analogy of building a house. These five virtues are the foundation of a life that takes us somewhere. And like you've heard me say, when we choose to follow Jesus, we get to where he's taken us. And this is part of where that journey is going. If you haven't already made up your mind that violence in all of its forms only perpetuates a cycle of destruction against all of God's creation that also bears his image, and it'll cost you way more than it will ever promise to give you in return, then there's nothing I'm going to say this morning that will convince you. So let me close with a letter written 2,000 years ago by a leader in the early church. This letter was written 30 years after Jesus had been crucified, after Jesus had uh, taught these pivotal, pivotal messages. It was written by Paul the Apostle, who never heard Jesus teach. He wasn't at the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't in at Gethsemane. He wasn't in Simon's house when Jesus came for lunch. He didn't hear Jesus tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. He heard none of it. Yet when I read his words you will be amazed at how much he understands Jesus' teachings. It's because the disciples followed the way. They believed Jesus. They took to heart and taught everything Jesus had taught them, these five virtues included. Listen to how well those disciples must have understood Jesus by how much Paul was able to grasp. From his letter, to the Roman Christians in chapter 12. Let me close with this. Paul encourages them. He says, love from the center of who you are. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends to those who love deeply. Practice humility. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled in a flame 
Be alert, servants of God, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help the needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it, says God. Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. <laughs>